0: So if you don't know this, we actually videotape the messages now, because so, we have people who live uh, back east who used to come to Element, and then they're in the military, they get you know, sent somewhere else, usually Wyoming, because they're guarding like, the fence or something. Anyway, so, and, and, and they're always asking, you know, we listen to the podcast, we, we like it so much better to see what's going on, so we started videotaping all of them. And I'm on a never-ending quest to try and mess up the guy who's shooting the videos. That's why I bought this shirt. I was, uh, my wife and I were at Marshall, so I'm in like the, the, you know, clearance store on the clearance rack, all right? So I'm like, 10 bucks, can't pass it up. I'm thinking, she's like, oh, and I'm like, exactly, the camera's gonna go crazy, it'll be sweet. So, so I bought it, and I don't know how it's affecting Paul back there, but hopefully it's, I'm just like, you know, like white noise right here. White noise, okay. It's funnier to me. My wife goes, you're laughing because you think it's mean. And I go, yeah, I am. <laughs> Welcome to Element. If you're new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If you have a smartphone, you get an app. It's called UVersion. You click on Live and YouVersion. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get all the sermon notes and the verses and the questions as well. Uh, I have one thing to, to tell you about as we get going is we have a, a lady at Element who is getting involved in this thing. They're going to call it Cinderella's Closet. And there are girls who would like to go to prom or formal event, but because of our economy, they can't afford dresses. So what they're doing is they're asking anybody who has like an old bridesmaid dress or an old formal dress or prom dress that kind of sits in your closet and you never like, oh, I'll fit in that again one day. Not going to happen. All right. So cin- <laughs> it's true. Second law, thermodynamics, entropy, we all go downhill, trust me, I know, I get out of bed in the morning, I'm like, oh, why don't my feet work, oh, you know, that's, because you get old, right? Okay, so send an email, dresses at ourelement.org. If you have a dress you'd like to donate, and they're going to take them and they're going to put them in a room and all the girls are going to walk through and shop for free for a prom dress that they can actually wear to prom. So it's a great thing. Uh, right now they're doing it with Orchid Academy. Uh, next year everything's in the works to actually do it whole community-wide. We're actually, whatever room we're in at that point, we're taking all the chairs, we're going to set all the dresses up and girls can come through and shop no matter what school they're from. And so we, we really want this kind of expand uh you know, it's it's a great way to bless people, show the love of Christ in a very tangible way in a dress. You know what's so funny? Yes. Uh, you know, the whole Betty White, and if you weren't here last couple weeks, I actually said Dick Clark's name, and, she died, and he died, and I said, what about if Betty White died? But she didn't, so she's still going. My friend Donald sent me an email and said, could you say the name of my wife's cat? And I go, what? said, so Betty White's still kicking, so apparently I don't have that much power. So, whatever. Uh, last thing is this. If you are from another church uh, that is attending Element now, maybe something happened to your church, uh, maybe it closed, or maybe you're just looking for a home. Uh, our elders are going to be available after this service and next service. Out the back doors, there's like a little square building out there we're going to be in there and you can come and we'd love to talk to you answer any questions that you have about what element is and and our vision for like gospel communities and our mission as a church that we want to do and be so we invite all of you guys to hang out and come and talk to us you don't have to but you can if you want to so there you go won't you stand with me the reading of god's word may weed some of you out right now with this message, but we'll see. Uh, This is 1 Corinthians 10.13, and it says, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we, as your people, would understand more succinctly who you are and the sovereignty of you and your grace, and that everything comes from your hands, and that we would be a people who take much confidence in that. Amen. Have a seat. So this is week 15 of Genesis. If you missed any, they're all online and all on video too, which I know I got a face for radio, but that's okay. We'll figure that out later. Uh, Today we're going to cover some hard ground for a lot of you. You may even feel like I'm giving you the end of the message at the beginning because I'm just going to start hammering at you like I kind of do at the end, but we're going to do that at at the beginning. And then when I round it out in the end, hopefully it will all make a little more sense to you. We're going to discuss the issue today of God's sovereignty. And what that looks like. Uh, some of you may be like, really? You guys believe that? Yes, we do believe in the sovereignty of God. But more so than a lot of other people who say they actually believe in the sovereignty of God. So I'll lay this out for you. We have come through one of the bloodiest chapters in the Bible. Everybody dies. God takes out everyone. And I know we paint the happy scenes and giraffes are poking their head out the one window in the ark. We, woo, so much fun, right? Nobody paints the bloated floaters that are in the water around the ark. Nobody does that because we all want to make it into a happy event, but it's not. It's one of the bloodiest chapters in all of the scriptures. Now, why does this happen? What gives God the right to do that, to send a flood? That's an issue of God's sovereignty. The life that we have comes graciously from the hand of God. It is his. He can actually take it whenever he wishes. One Jewish teaching actually says that every breath that you take is God breathing into you. Take a deep breath. Go. That right there is a gift from God. So let me ask you a question, which I'm going to ask you a few questions through this message, most rhetorical, but just kind of go with me like I'm actually asking you the question. Whose fault is it the flood occurred? God's. God's. Many people are afraid to say that. You know who's never afraid to say that? God. He's not afraid to say those things at all. I mean, he did it because of our sin, you know, the sin that was on the earth, surely. But God says, I will surely bring about this thing. And that's what God does. The second question is, why does God do that? And the answer would be, for his glory and his work. The flood was God's doing. And that should actually bring us some comfort. And you go, why does that bring me comfort? That's what we're going to talk about this morning, why that actually brings some comfort to us. Open your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're actually going to get to one verse in Genesis today, it's at the very end. So John chapter 11. In John 11, uh, Jesus has a friend. His name is Lazarus. Lazarus is about ready to die, and Jesus is lollygagging around, taking his own sweet time, going to see Lazarus. Eventually, Lazarus is going to die. Now, there's a great miracle that comes with that, but before that happens, he's going to die. And so his friends are like, why? You know, what's, what's going on with this? John 11, verse 4, Jesus says, It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Isn't that so comforting? You know, this guy's going to die for the glory of God. How wonderful. Open your Bibles to John chapter 9. Just right to the left a little bit. In John chapter 9, there's a guy born blind from birth. And the Jews in this age believed, and actually in a lot of ages too, that with, if you were born blind or something like that, you did something wrong, your parents did something wrong. And that's the problem with religion. Religion always starts with you. Religion is about karma. Christianity starts with Jesus. Religion says, oh, there are good people and there's bad people. Jesus says, you're all bad people, and then there's him. Religion is about what I do. It's about going to meetings, going to church, speaking in tongues, lifting my hands, praying really hard. Christianity is about Jesus and his finished work religion's goal is to get from God I will do these things and God will give me this Christianity's goal is Jesus and his glory religion sees suffering and hurting people as being punished by God oh you're sick you lost your job what did you do wrong religion gives these people nothing Even today, every stupid guru from Deepak Chopra to Oprah to Dr. Phil to have the crazies on the Christian TV blame you for something going wrong in your life. Now, sometimes it's actually true. All right? You don't have any money to make rent because you smoked it all. That's your fault. All right? You you live in the the park in a tent because you're too lazy to get a job. Your fault. All right? But being born blind or your child getting sick, these people say if you did it better, if you had the right thoughts, if you had enough faith, then everything would be better. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So it's not why. The question is, who? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus just said, God did it. There is a propensity for us to run from the fact that God is in charge. Christians are always trying to make excuses and defend God for things he never tries to defend himself against. There's been been a search by Christians to try and let God off the hook for anything that happens in our world that we don't deem as good. And so we're like, oh, no, God's not really in charge of that. That happened. And we always try to get around God's sovereignty, but you can't. Amos chapter 3, verse 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? How about Lamentations 3.38? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Now, bad isn't sin. Bad is what we would deem as bad, such as the flood. God is not concerned about you and I blaming him for anything. But you don't blame him just to get your choices off the hook. I mean, if you blame him, you've got to be sure that you realize that there is a God, and he is sovereign, and he is in control. And this is something that people will struggle with their entire lives. But it can also be very comforting in the best possible way, that if God's in charge, we don't actually have to be. Jesus says, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God had this man born blind for his work. Yeah. Yeah. What is that work? That God would be glorified. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Do you understand that God does everything for his glory and that is why we should as well? Here, Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. God says, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. John Piper says, The role of the Holy Spirit is to burn in me what he has been burning for all of eternity. God's love for God. Who is the most God centered being in the universe? God. God is the most God-centered being in the universe. I know that sounds very self-centered because we think we should be the most centered being in the universe. I'll give you a theological concept here. Just follow with me. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God or who he has revealed himself to be. This is why idolatry and not atheism is the opposite of Christianity because atheism is idolatry. It's placing ourselves and our three-pound brain ahead of God. So, is God an idolater? No. No, just throwing it out there for you. Just in case you were wondering, that's, oh, it's been a burning question all my life. No, God is not an idolater. He does not sin. God has no gods before himself. God is completely God-centered. God has passion for His glory above all else. Jonathan Edwards writes this, God has respect to Himself as His last and highest end in this work because He is worthy in Himself to be so, being infinitely the greatest and best of beings. All that is ever spoken of in the Scripture as the ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. See, our problem is many people don't mind being God-centered as, as long as we believe that God is man-centered first. And that's dangerous because what that does is we think we're centering our lives on God, but we're really making a, him an end to our own self-esteem. In Desiring God, which I recommend you all read, John Piper says, God's, God loves his glory more than he loves us, and that is the foundation of his love. This is why God always says stop trusting in man. Stop trusting in man. Isaiah 2.22 Stop trusting in man who has but breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? Psalm 146 verse 3 Do not put your trust in princes and mortal men who cannot save. Jeremiah 17.5 This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Isaiah 40 verse 15 Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. 40, verse 17. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. By putting our trust in people, we are setting ourselves up for failure. This is why we trust God. Because God's commitment is to himself, we have security. Isaiah forty eight eleven in the NIV. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. God performs salvation for his people for his own name's sake. He justifies people called by his name that he may be glorified. Ezekiel thirty-six, twenty-two and 23. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among them, the nations will know that I am the Lord. Why does God save us? Ephesians one six, so the glory of his grace might be praised. Why did God create people and then call them? Isaiah forty three verse seven for his glory. Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart and deliver Israel? Exodus nine sixteen, that his name might be declared throughout the earth. Why does God spare Israel when they continuously rebel against him? Ezekiel 20, for Samuel 8, for his name's sake. Why did God bring the Israelites back from Babylonian captivity? Daniel 9, for his name. Why did God send his son to die and rise for his people? Romans 158 and 9, so that we might glorify God for his mercy. Now, if you have your Bible, open to John chapter 12. See, I'm trying to keep you in the single spot so You can get in there, right? Right in there. Okay. This is Jesus' last week on the earth. He's praying to the Father, and in John twelve twenty seven and 28, this is what he says. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Noah's for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Christ died to glorify the Father, to repair the defamation that we brought upon his name and his honor. Simply put, God is committed to being God before he's committed to anything else. And that gives us great security because God does not change. Here's a couple more questions for you. Do you stake the answers to your prayers on God's love for his glory? When you look at the scriptures, do you look at the scriptures to understand God's glory better? Do you try and find something for yourself? Because the foundation and the means and the goal of God's love for sinners is his prior, deeper, and ultimate love for his glory. And this means Noah's flood was about God's glory as well. Today, we have tried to turn God into like a doting mother who follows us around and makes sure we never, ever get hurt. Nothing bad's ever going to happen to you. Th- that's just not true. And this is one of the reasons that Christianity is so messed up today. Because we think this is what God does. He makes it so I never skin my knees. That's not what God is like. I'm going to try and now make this a little more relatable to you by walking you through a couple things. The first one is, I'll tell you about my friend Ken. When Ken was 10 years old, uh, he went to the hospital for shoving more than 25 Red Hots up his nose. Okay? Smart kid, right? You're like, oh... This is what it's like. It seems there was some record in his neighborhood set by some kid. Nobody knows where this kid lived or what his name was, but somehow this kid got 18 Red Hots up his nose. And so, you know, a record like that is just begging to be broken by little boys. It's like, ah, 18, I can do 18. It's like, name that tune. I'll go to... 25, you know, and start shoving him in there. And so he's got, a, he's got this crowd like 10 other kids egging him on. He gets, tries to get an entire box of Red Hots up his nose. I mean, and an amazing feat by any person, male or female, equal opportunity, all right? You can both do whatever you want. He's able to course almost this whole box in his nose before he just almost died, right? I say more than 25 because no one really knows. It was just more than 25 at the resuscitation process at the hospital. It's like they couldn't really, figure it was all just one lump in there when they pulled it out. So when he when he tells the story, he says, you know, there's a mild burning irritation between 10 to 15, and this this throbbing at about 20, and at 25 it is just unbearable. You can't breathe. He starts trying to you know blow him back out his at his nose like snot, and so when he can't get him out his nose, the, if, what does every little boy do? They run to their savior, who is mom, ah, right, so, so he gets home and his mom thinks he was in a fight because, you know, red food coloring coming out of his nose and, and all of his friends are, are laughing and finally someone comes down enough to says, he has 25 red hot shoved up his nose, <laughs> you know, so, he's so then the mom has, this is an emergency, emergencies go to the hospital, so they take him to the hospital, they irrigate the nose, they go in, they cut it all up, they pull out all the red hots, they get a good laugh and they send him home. If you're a woman and you hear this story, you're probably thinking, my goodness, how embarrassing to go home and face all your friends after something so stupid. Not so. Ken returns home from the hospital in glory, in glory. No one had ever gotten near the record of 18 red hots. And Ken, by sheer determination and willpower, got over 25 shoved up in that nasal cavity. I mean, he returns home, a legend. The pain that he endured made him like a hero. Now, there's no more red hots allowed in his home, as if it's the red hots' fault, not the stupid little kid. But, you know, that's. Now, and I'm just in a very far removed way, very far removed way, right? That whole the pain that Ken went through makes him into this hero. This is the thing that kind of happens to Noah. Noah goes through all this pain, all the, and on the other side, we look him at, as like this living legend. I'll tell you, this side of life, meaning my 40s, I am convinced that pain is necessary to grow and become well-rounded people. Yet we, in our society today, we structure our society around, around our safety. I like to call this knee pads and helmets. We do it in an effort to keep us or our children from getting hurt. This has then crept into the church as well. The, in this process of safety, we're not teaching anybody how to deal with pain, especially when that pain comes from the hand of our God and we are damaging people more in the name of safety than they could ever get hurt on their own. I mean, life is about Jesus, love, joy, hope, connection, laughter, but many times God brings pain to grow us into who we're supposed to be. Throughout the scriptures, God is constantly taking people into places they fear, into places they could get hurt or even killed, and he constantly does this. It does not seem like God is concerned with knee pads and helmets anywhere in his creation. As a matter of fact, it looks like whenever possible, he strips those things away and sends us off into the unknown. You look at Noah. He's a man living a life not unlike other people of his day. In Genesis 6, 8, it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And I told you three weeks ago that word favor is the first rendering of the Hebrew word grace in the scriptures. Noah's name backward actually has the connotations of this word grace. Now, Noah didn't get grace or find favor because verse 9 where it says he's a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah is just like everyone else else and God shows up and extends grace to him and only after the extension of grace does Noah become a righteous man blameless among the people of his time after grace, Noah begins to walk with God. So you have to think of this in our vernacular today. You know, he's, he's a guy, he's living his life, trying to attain peace and, and security and contentedness and comfort. He's working his job, adding to his 401K, raising his family, all for the purpose that one day he can be taken care of. He doesn't have to live on the street, out of a box, or have to beg from a soup kitchen. Things are going well. His portfolio looks really good. God shows up and extends him grace what a wonderful day the god of the universe extends grace to noah things got to be looking up you know god's on his side but god's priorities are different than noah's priorities god's not so concerned about noah's portfolio of stocks and assets god's concerned about his glory and his glory causes him to be concerned about noah's soul and that of his family the earth is full of people living for only their own security and it has led to great corruption and evil and violence. And God's decided, oh, I'm going to put an end to all of this self-centeredness. And in putting an end to this, he shows Noah, Noah grace, makes him righteous, and tells him to build a gigantic ark that because God's going to flood the earth and this is going to provide a way for people to be saved. So Noah's 401k means nothing. He's never going to get to use it. All the money he saved for a rainy day isn't really going to help when the rainy day actually shows up. For 100 years, Noah and his three sons built a boat the size of an ocean liner in their backyard with nasty wood and crude tools. And I am sure they were made fun of by the surrounding people. But you got to think of it this way. God is actually having Noah build salvation in his backyard. And they mock and they ridicule. God is providing a way for you to be saved. And people mock and they ridicule that. I think Noah's house became like a tourist attraction. People are like, you know, you go visit the gigantic rubber ball in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Ooh, look at the boat. You know, it's like, hey, let's go look at Noah's boat. That crazy guy, he's 50 years into it and he's still not done yet. Let's look at that. What does Noah do during this time of ridicule while he waits for God to prove himself faithful for a hundred years? He becomes a preacher. Second Peter 2, 5 says, a herald of righteousness. So not only did Noah not lose heart in the midst of all this pain he had to endure, he told others, trust this God who has stripped me from everything and made me a laughing stock. Yes, you can be a follower too. Don't you want to be? I mean, seriously. Trust this God that strips him of everything that he thought important and redefine Noah's life in terms of grace and glory. See, I don't think Noah even, even preached, you know, follow God because the flood's coming. I think he says, follow God. He's provided a way. He's provided a way. Later in Genesis, we'll get to a guy named Abraham. And when God's glory shows up and his grace shows up, it strips him of everything as well. I mean, he's he's retirement age. He is like 65, and God shows up and says, hey, uh, we're going to go over here. And was like, or I mean, Abraham's like, oh, okay. Soren Kierkegaard calls Abraham a knight of the absurd. Because God shows up, and, and Abraham doesn't know anything about the one true God. And God shows up and says, you're going to follow me. And he's like, okay, let's go. I mean, he just drops everything and goes. It's amazing. And God promises him a son. Why does God promise Abraham a son? Because we will lead to his son, Jesus. That's why he promises him a son. Abraham's son Isaac has a son named Jacob. God shows up to Jacob, offers him grace, and then takes him to different places in his life that just seem to make it a disaster. He goes from place to place on the verge of death. Jacob finally resolves in his heart, I am going to take the spiritual leadership for my family seriously now. I'm going to do it. And as soon as he does that, that night, God shows up and beats him up all night long. It's just beautiful. It's it's like, I'm really going to follow you. Good smack. I mean, really? Is that that what that's like? I mean, after Jacob survives this wrestling match all night long, you know, God gives him a limp and he limps the rest of his life. After that, he loses his wife. His son tries to steal his authority. His father dies. I'm glad he received grace. It's so wonderful. Israel has a son, uh, Jacob, Israel, has a son named Joseph, who it seems every time Joseph gets any bit of security in his life, God strips it away and throws him right back into the fray. Throughout the scriptures, God strips people of their safety nets, their knee pads and their helmets, because he is sovereign. And he knows what it means to make us grow. The Moses and the Israelites hang out in the desert forty years. You see, the same throughout all of Israel's history. Almost every single person that God seeks, that seeks God, has a time in their life when God refuses them to live in a place of comfort and security. He moves them to hard times and difficult circumstances that require them to rely on Him alone. Jeremiah, Amos, David, Daniel, all the Old Testament prophets, all the way to Jesus. I mean, you get Jesus. Okay, Jesus shows up, God's son. If anybody on this planet would get to wear knee pads and helmets as you ride that Tonka truck called life down the driveway of adversity, it is going to be Jesus, right? No, not at all. Jesus faces life head on, and he has the worst trek of all. Jesus is constantly in situations where people are trying to kill him or silence him or discredit him or or just question all of his judgment. But one of the reasons Jesus came was to show all people God's glory and how a life lived that places its full trust in the Father can actually be lived and shows what that looks like. In the end, Jesus is killed. Jesus always, foundation of the world, was intended to be the sacrifice. He promises this himself in Genesis chapter 3. He knew that and he still comes without the trappings of safety and security and power. He steps into the human element and dies for all people. The Father did not spare the Son, the harshness of this world. Why do we think we're any different? Why? Almost every single one of the apostles, they are martyred. The people who were charged with bringing freedom and truth that comes from knowing God, all killed for the message because people long for their knee pads and helmets more than they long for God and true freedom. Why? What I can tell you is this, is in truth, every story in the scripture where God comes and brings hard times in somebody's life, they grow. Every person I have ever known that goes through pain and hardship in their lives grow on the backside of it. Actually, more people grow through pain than anything else they ever go through. And fear can entice us to hide and run away from embracing the unknown things of life. But life is always unknown except for one person, God. So why not trust him when he moves our knee pads and helmets? Why don't we step out and be vulnerable by trusting God actually has a plan? That God knew what he was doing in the flood. That God knew what he was doing when Jesus came and died and rose. And especially that he knows what he's doing when adversity hits our own lives. We trust God's goal of his glory because in the end that brings to his people joy no matter how the grace is extended to us. C.S. Lewis wrote this book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. They turned it into a movie. I didn't really like the movie, but whatever. If you haven't read the book or seen the movie, I'll give you a little primer here. Okay, Aslan is this lion. Aslan represents Jesus. It's, it's all metaphor. Okay, so Aslan, lion, Jesus kind of goes like that uh, there's a child named lucy she's preparing to meet this lion aslan for the very first time and there's an exchange between susan which is another girl and then lucy the child and then mr and mrs beaver i know it sounds really convoluted but if you read the book watch it makes a little more sense okay this is how this, is how this exchange goes "Ooh," said susan i thought he was a man meaning aslan is he quite safe i shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Miss Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy, the little girl. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And this is the idea behind this. God, Jesus, they're not safe as we think safe. He floods the world, but he is good, but he is good. Open your Bible to Genesis chapter 8. I'll give you the one verse. Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. This is after the, the ark's been floating for a while. It says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. See, God doesn't forget he remembers. And when you, when you see this God you know, remembered Noah, it's not like God's like, oh, what was I doing? Oh, yeah, what, oh, I got that boat float. I better go get that guy. That, that's not what that means. When it says God remembers or God remembers his covenant with someone, it indicates that God is about to take action on behalf of someone's welfare. This happens again in Genesis 9, Genesis 19, Genesis 30, Exodus 2, Exodus 23, Psalm 25, Psalm 74. All throughout the scriptures, this idea that God remembers his people. All life on earth having been destroyed, God now proceeds to renew everything. This echoes Genesis 1. It echoes Genesis 4. And this process goes all the way on to you and me in the New Testament. It says this for us as well. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. It's been flooded, drowned, buried, gone. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. New creation. And God does not forget us. God knew us in the womb. He plants us in the uterine wall. He he forms our zygote, nudges us down the birth canal, or if you were C-section, you were lifted out of there. God was there. God is there. And when we're ashes in the grave and the memory of us on earth is long faded, this God remembers us. He has never forgotten us, ever. Why? His glory. That is why. Our God understands the cross and still delivers his son to that. This God who sent his son, though we didn't do anything to deserve it, he remembers us on that cross. Why? His glory. Last week in our GC we were talking and, and Ryan said he had a friend who was going to watch The Passion in front of a movie theater and uh, someone, he said, drove by and they go, He dies at the end! You know, But that's not how it ends. He rises in the end. You see, God has not forgotten about us. Death, burial, resurrection, he never forgets. A year ago in Lamentations, I told you that in your life, one day, there's going, be, there's going to be a fight between your faith and what you see with your eyes. And you'll have to figure out, if we see with your eyes and, and what God has actually declared, what are you going to do with those two things? And if you understand his glory, it all makes more sense. Because even resurrection is not understandable without Calvary. There are no shortcuts, no knee pads, no helmets. We all go through the fire. And we will find out if we truly believe that it is about God's glory or our own. And it is about his glory. And we are to be about his glory as well. This is why every week at Element we bring you guys to a place of communion. Because communion, it's about Christ's death, which is why you break the cracker like his body was broken, dipping it in the wine of the grape juice like his blood that was shed for us. But it is about his glory, his salvation for us comes out of his love for his glory. God is committed to us because he is committed to being who he is and who he has always been. So this morning... We do invite you guys to take communion. The band's going to come up and do a couple songs. And as they do these songs, uh, like I said, communion will be uh, some elders and deacons in the back if you need prayer for anything. If you're like, I mean, I need a, a better grasp on this whole idea of glory and God's glory and not my own and what this all looks like and God's sovereignty. Uh, they would love to pray with you. They'd love to talk to you about those things as well. Um, there's offering boxes on the side wall on the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. So we give you the opportunity every single week. Uh, and there's some food in the back. Uh, my wife didn't make uh, banana bread, but I didn't bring it. It's at home. I had some this morning. It's very good. You don't get any. When she does it, she's like, take this down to the church. I'm like, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll take a cookie down, and see who gets it. anyway, uh, but there is some food and stuff in the back, and we invite you guys to to you know grab some coffee or hot chocolate, whatever's back there. It is can kind of warm water, you know. And grab something to eat and meet some other people around you. on On the back of the questions are you know in the in the live thing, on on the U version, the the questions are in there. And we invite you to like grab somebody you're here with or maybe somebody that isn't even here and then sit down and maybe ask those questions together and get a better grasp on God's glory and His sovereignty and who He really is so that we can actually live lives that better reflect Him. Because, I mean, guys, th- this is the point. It is not about us. It is fully about Him and what He has been since the foundation of the world. God is God is God. And He loves and has grace and extends it to His people. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we'd be those who better understand your grace and your sovereignty. That instead of running around and, and trying to earn our own salvation, we trust that it truly comes from you and your hand. But in that, and understanding that, I ask that you make us truly humble people, realizing that you are the God who is in control of all things. And that everything comes to our lives has been sifted through your hands. And that you are the one who sits on the throne And it is not us. So that we can truly become the people you have made us to be. Father, I ask that when adversity hits us, or maybe there's a lot of people in this room this morning who have a lot of adversity in their lives, I ask that you would give them a greater picture of who you are and what you intend to do through that. Father, for those of us who have life and it's kind of going okay right now, I ask for strength when the adversity does hit. And the growth does come. Because we will be need, need to be those who remember that you have remembered us. That we love because you first loved us. That it all begins and ends with you. Have us be those who truly worship and honor you as our great God. By trusting you with everything that is within us. Amen.